Our text for today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right, all right. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see all of you. I walked outside this morning, and it was hot, and I thought, oh, geez, this is great. Well, we're all here this morning because it's Easter. I didn't know if you knew this. Uh, uh, But Easter is one of those holidays that I think in our culture is becoming a a little bit more and more a religious holiday and less and less uh, a holiday in our kind of wider Western culture. Now, it's still a holiday at Target. Like, they're still going to make their money. Uh, So you can go buy all the pastel-colored jelly beans you want, and you can drop them off at my house. But... uh, but in, in large part, I think our culture is moving a little bit way, away from the celebration of Easter. And there are tangible examples of this. There are. Um, has anybody ever heard of Coachella? You can raise your hand if you have. <laughs> Somebody's been to Coachella. Uh, uh, it's a big music festival that takes place in California over two weekends in the spring. Um, and they are actually holding the final weekend of that today, uh, this, this weekend. Uh, here's a picture, I think. We have a picture of Coachella up on the screen. Do we have it? What? No, nope, wrong one. <laughs> wrong picture. There it is. There it is. We just randomly put up pictures of Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> that's what our church is all about. Um, that's Coachella. That looks a little bit like a church service, right? Just a really big one. Uh, and in 2017, it was estimated that 125,000 people attended this event, right? And this year, I'm sure it'll be many more. But in case you are worried that the concert goers at Coachella are going to miss out on church, you would be mistaken. You would be mistaken about this because none other than Kanye West himself has decided that he is going to have a church service at Coachella this morning. And that's being streamed on YouTube as we speak. So if you get bored today (laughs) and you want something a little bit more lively and in the Kanye West version of the world, you can can pull it up and watch that. Um, That is not what I want you to do, just FYI. (laughs) Please don't do that. Now, I, I bring all this up not to be intentionally oppositional or to go on kind of like, look where our culture is going kind of rant. Like, I am really not all that concerned with where our culture is going, to be honest with you. I bring it up to just simply to point out that this is a trend in our culture and that all of us, in some way, shape, or form, look to someone for leadership in our lives. We all do this. All of us get our value and our worth from something. We all gain our worldview from something or somewhere. 
We all have a vision of our mind, in our minds, of what life at its best should look like, what it's all about. And whether uh, you are conscious of it or not, this vision that you have in your mind or in your heart of the good life determines in large part how we live. It does. For example, is, if your vision for life is, uh, is to build a big business, for instance, that is determinative for the way you will live your life. And your sense of worth, your sense of value, and all the things that you do in your life will kind of be hedged on if that business is successful or not, right? If you have a vision of life where the value that you place on life is in the ability to buy things, then you will always be in pursuit of the next car, the next house, the next iPhone, the latest version of the Traeger grill, which I heard is really great and I want. Uh, but whatever it is, whatever, whatever vision you have for your life, whether it's about being cool in a cultural sense or what, whatever it is, that vision will determine what steps you take in your life. It will determine, in large part, who you are and what you do. If your desire is to be cool in a cultural sense, then you're probably at Coachella right now, right? And your vision, uh, and the, the other thing about vision is that when we have a vision, we almost always look to a leader. We have a kind of leader. That vision leads our lives, and that leader will look different to different people. For those at Coachella, and this was going to be a lot funnier before the picture of Beyonce but came up, but look, it's Beyonce. She's... She's our leader, right? No, she's not mine personally. But for in large part, we look to some we we look to people like that, right? With, with dependent upon what our vision for life is, and we look to that person as a means of communicating to us how to live, what what vision for the good life actually looks like. And the condition and this determines or conditions the way we live in the world. Now, Christians are people whose vision of the good life has been derived from, not, has not been derived from uh, consumerist culture, has not been derived from allegiance to any particular nation or political party, and is not dependent on what the culture says is cool this particular week. Rather, Christians are people whose vision for life hinges on the resurrection of a Galilean rabbi who died named Jesus. And when I put it like that, it sounds a little strange. Like, uh, you mean I have to hinge my life on a Galilean Jewish rabbi who died 2,000 years ago? Like, Beyonce feels like a much better option, right? And many people take that option. Many people do. But the reason it sounds strange is in part why I think the Christian faith is so very unique, actually. It is because, at its core, Christianity gains both its coherence and its meaning, not from a bunch of vague religious maxims, not from a philosophy of life. Christianity derives its meaning and significance from a historical event, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The New Testament uh, scholar and early church historian N.T. Wright affirms the same when he says this. This, then, is, is more or less... Uh, is the more or less universal witness of early Christians. 
that they are who they are, that they do what they do, that they tell the stories that they tell, not because of a new religious experience or insight, but because something, because of something that happened, something that happened to the crucified Jesus. In short, something had happened in history, and it gave these early Christians a new vision, a new hope, new purpose. And that something had massive implications for who they understood themselves to be and what they did with their lives moving forward, the story that they lived into with their lives. And if we claim that the resurrection is a historical event, we ought to investigate that historical event a little bit this morning to see if it is even reasonable to think that a man was, ra- was raised from the dead, because this is the claim of Christianity, and it is a strange one. And I think it's important, just at the front end of this message, to just investigate that for a moment, because the claim of, of Christianity for 2,000 years was that Jesus was resurrected, that he was raised from the dead. And so that, uh, that historical event, that occurrence, is in need of a little investigation. We ought to, and in order to do that, we also must look at what the resurrection means. So today, what I kind of want to do is do two things with you. The first thing I want to do is just delve in briefly to the historical event that is the resurrection and try to point us in a direction to see that why it could be that it actually happened. And the second thing I want to do this morning is delve into the meaning of that resurrection a little bit more deeply to help us understand. So, first, the resurrection as a historical event. The resurrection as a historical event. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not a historian. I'm not an early, I'm not a, a scholar of the New Testament or anything like that. Uh, but, I, but I think there is some real, um, there's some real solid basis for believing that the resurrection actually took place. Uh, there are two books in particular, if you want to read more about this, that I think are really, really important. Both of them kind of by the same person. The first is a book called Surprised by Hope if by N.T. Wright. Somebody I'll quote twice in this message. Uh, it's probably the most important popular level Christian book that was writ- has been written in the, in the 21st century, but definitely I would say the most important Christian, popular Christian book that's been written since probably Mere Christianity. Um, so if you want to do any more reading in, in that field, you can pick that book up. It's always cheap on Amazon if you're a Kindle person. And the second book is also, again, by uh, N.T. Wright, but also with another author. It's called The Meaning of Jesus, Two Visions. And in this book, uh, we see side by side uh, a historian who argues for uh, that, the, that the resurrection didn't actually happen, and then N.T. Wright arguing that the resurrection did happen. And you can see kind of both sides of the argument, and it's very helpful. It was very helpful for me. So if you want to delve into these things, you can go read books by people who are a lot smarter than me. Yes. Uh, but it is important that we look deeply at these issues, and particularly it's important that we look deeply into the, into the face of these issues because the, the writers of the New Testament, those first followers of Jesus, were unequivocal in their belief that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. They, there's, they have no bones about it. New Testament writers based everything they did, everything they said, and that all of their lives, and some of them laid their lives down for the fact that Jesus was literally bodily resurrected from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God 
that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. He's really hammering this point home. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Though, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of, uh, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all we are of all people most to be pitied if there's not a resurrection. So real positive statement here from Paul, right? But it gets the point of cross. From the perspective of the, of the early writers of Scripture, everything hinges on the, on, the, on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Everything. It, is the, it was, at least from the perspective of the early writers of Scripture, the linchpin of history. And by extension, the linchpin of every human life. Now, there are some very good and well-argued reasons for believing in the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and I'm not going to recount them all here because this is not a college course. But I do want to mention one, because for my money, it is uh, probably one of the best reasons to believe in the resurrection. And it comes from uh, literary, uh, literary studies, basically. If you look at the way that in the ancient world historians wrote about history, the way they wrote their history stories, one of the things that you find out is that the people who wrote those accounts of history were responsible to both investigate the events and interview eyewitnesses to those events. So if I was writing a history of Cedar Falls, I would have to go interview, talk to, explore all of the people who had been... Um, instrumental in the forming of the history of Cedar Falls, and then I would write that narrative. And in order to let people know that they were, that they were doing this, that they were doing the work of interviewing, that they were doing the work of, they're essentially doing their due diligence in being a, his, a reporter of history, they would drop names into the stories that they were telling of the eyewitnesses that they interviewed. So they would say, and so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that. And they would actually give very specific names. This is the way that both Greek and Roman history stories were written. As a way of saying, if you don't, if you don't trust me, go ask John. He saw it, right? This is functionally what they were doing. And this happens multiple times in the New Testament as well. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is laying out the message about Jesus and his resurrection, he, this is what he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, like, who's that guy, right? Why is that important to me? And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, which is a way of saying in ancient history, go talk to him about it, though some have fallen asleep, some have passed away. Paul is essentially saying here, these people who met with Jesus after his resurrection, after he had been bodily resurrected from the dead, are still alive, reach out to him, Right? And while this is not proof of Jesus' bodily resurrection, it's not. You can't really prove that in, in an empirical sense in the 21st century. It is at, it is at least historically um, significant that there were a number of Jesus' followers and friends who, after he died, claimed that he came back to life. A number of them. Not one, not two, not five 
many people knew that Jesus died and then believed that he was resurrected. Now, this is strange, isn't it? It, it feels uh, a little weird, but it, it, you have to account for these people. Regardless of whether or not you believe that somebody can be resurrected, somebody can be raised from the dead, we do have to account for the, for the, the statements of these individuals who believed that this actually happened. If we, we can't just kind of throw it on the scrap heap of history and assume that they were all crazy or that they were all just, you know, they, were, they lived 2,000 years ago so they just weren't as smart as us or something like that. No, these people claimed that something happened and that claim must be at the very least dealt with, historically speaking. And so this is, I think, one of the, mo- one of the, one of the more uh, strong arguments for the historical resurrection of Jesus. As I said, there are a lot more. But it's something you can look into, and it's something that in some sense, regardless of whether you believe it actually happened or not, it is a historical event that needs to be reckoned with. It's not something that can just be dismissed out of hand. You know, all of the stories we have of, from antiquity about Alexander the Great or Caesar or different people like that, very often those accounts in history are based on only one or two sources. So you guys are familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer's epic stories. Those are based on like one or two manuscripts that we have that's been, that has been passed down from antiquity that was discovered and kind of cobbled together and placed into a book. They're uh, just one or two examples. And in, tho- in those books, and uh, another example of this is the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle. We don't have actually very many copies of those works. We just have copies of copies of copies of copies. And because we look back at those and we say, oh, Plato or Aristotle said this, because we have these one or two copies. When you then compare that to the number of examples we have of, uh, of historical uh, statements about the resurrected Jesus, closer in proximity to his life than to any of these other historical writings about these other figures from Greek and Roman antiquity, what we find is that we have far more writings, what we, have far more, we have far more texts stating that Jesus was raised from the dead than, any, than from any other person in all of history. There is, there is some argument to be made from history that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. We just have to grapple with that reality. And so, I just want to leave that there because I'm a Bible nerd and this stuff interests me, all right? So, that's the historical nature of the resurrection. So, if that is the kind of historical question about the resurrection, what then does the resurrection mean? What is its significance? Now, this is always the craziest part of any Easter Sunday, because a pastor is expected in like 25-ish minutes uh, to give you a lecture that is definitive about Jesus and Christianity and the resurrection and 2,000 years of church history. Like, I'm supposed to sum it all up, like, and put it in a nice bow, and then you're supposed to go to brunch, which turns out not to be possible, Uh, but I'm going to give it my best shot, all right? So, here we go. What does Jesus' resurrection mean? What does it mean? What is its significance from the scriptures? I really have three things, and it's up on the screen. Jesus' resurrection means he he defeated the powers of sin and death. He is vindicated as king. And finally, it means, Jesus' resurrection means God's plan of redemption and restoration is now in full swing. So we're just going to walk through those three things this morning. The whole of the Bible, all of it, the whole sweep, the whole story of the Bible 
sees both sin and death as the things as things that happen to individuals, but also as a kind of power that holds people in captive. It, hold, it actually kind of holds the entirety of the world captive. If you think back to the story of Genesis, death enters the world through sin, and now everything gets really messy, right? And in some sense, you can see all of the rest of the Bible as God working his plan to deal with the sin and death problem once and for all. This is a way that you can read the scriptures. And the resurrection of Jesus is, in the scriptural sense, God's ultimate plan to deal with the sin and death problem. Jesus is crucified for the sins of the world, and then he is raised to life in God's great act of vindication. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all are made alive. So the resurrection of Jesus means that the sin and death that have thus far kind of strangled the world have been defeated. They have been defeated. And though they still exist, the power has kind of been wrung out of them. And they no longer hold the same sway over people's lives. And that, and and for those who identify with Christ, their relationship to sin and death has fundamentally shifted in the person of Jesus. Knowing death has been ultimately defeated in short, changes the way you live. It changes your vision for life. It changes the way you conduct your business. If sin and death no longer have sway over your life. And in the resurrection, Jesus declares finally that sin and death no longer have a hold. So that's the first implication of the resurrection. The second implication of the resurrection is that Christ is vindicated as king. Jesus is vindicated as a king. The early Christians had this, uh, had this confession that they said very often. They, they confessed that Jesus is Lord. Three little words that summed up everything they believed. But this was really tricky in the first century world because there were all kinds of rulers claiming to be a Lord, claiming to be Lord. In the first century specifically, Caesar claimed to be Lord. If you go back and you look at some of the coins that were minted uh, during the time of the Caesars, particularly Caesar Augustus, it actually says on the coin, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. It was all over their money, right? Which, which tells you that they meant it. So in many ways, G- saying Jesus was Lord was a way of saying that Caesar is not. And that is the type of statement that can get you killed, Right? That is the type of statement that can end your life. But early Christians believe that, the, that, the resur- that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead vindicated him as Lord, or a better way of putting that is as king. And this touches on the question of leadership that we brought up from earlier, actually. That is to say that Jesus rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, he is the king. It, it, that means that uh, we need to take our manner or pattern of life, our philosophy, our vision from him. 
to, tr- to trust what he says about the way life is and to, and to step in under that reality. And the truth is that whether you have done it knowingly or not, whether it comes just through osmosis or whether it's a hard-fought philosophy of life, you have stepped in under some philosophy of life. You have some worldview. You follow some person, whether it be an author or a a musician or uh, a political figure, whoever it is. We have stepped in under the ideology, the philosophy, the belief system of something or someone. And the question that, that the, just the statement, Jesus is Lord, brings up in our minds is what ideology do we live in under? Whose authority do we respect in our lives? Who do we listen to? And this is important for us, right? Because there aren't any Caesars anymore at least in America. And there aren't people that are overtly saying to us, I'm your Lord, do what I say. But to say that there aren't ideologies, ideas, philosophies vying for our allegiance is simply short-sighted, right? The primary ones in our Western context are consumerism, nationalism, individualism, a few other hundred isms. But these are just some of the latest in a long line of beliefs vying for our allegiance. Often, culture has this way of just like subtly influencing us in ways that we're not even aware of and influencing our vision, our picture of the good life. It influences what we think is or is not valuable. And so the question that the resurrection poses to us is who do you look to for leadership? Is it Drake? I don't know. Champagne Poppy? Uh, Is it, sorry. Is it some politician, right? Do you put your, we have an election coming up, right? Are you putting your hope in some politician? Are you, fall, are you falling in under that person and taking their advice, right? Is it an author? Is it some public intellectual? Is it a podcast host, right? Do you think Joe Rogan just really got it figured out? I don't know. He's just a popular podcast person. I just dropped it. If you... Nobody laughed because everybody listens to it. They just don't want to admit it. (laughs) The list goes on and on, doesn't it? The list goes on and on. But here's the thing. If Jesus was was really resurrected from the dead, then he was really vindicated as king. And what he says about life is true. And if he was really resurrected from the dead, and if he was really vindicated as king, then we ought to have our vision for what life is subsumed under what he says. This is just the reality. If this is, if this is really what happened to Jesus, if this is historical event took place, then he is king, and what he says matters. And when he says this is the way to life, then he's right about it. If he was resurrected from the dead. If not, then you can have all kinds of debates and you can swim in a world of a myriad of philosophies and ideas and worldviews always competing for your attention and your allegiance. But if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, you have the ability to listen to the voice of one who claims to be king, who claims to be king. So that's the second one. The resurrection vindicates Jesus as king. 
And the third thing that the resurrection does, the third thing that it means, is that God's plan of redemption and renewal is now in full swing. It's now in full swing. N.T. Wright, the scholar, again says it this way. The God in whom we believe is the creator of the world, and he will one day put this world to rights. That solid belief is the bedrock of all Christian faith. God is not going to abolish the universe of space, time, and matter. He is going to renew it, to restore it, to fill it with new joy and purpose and delight, to take from it everything that has corrupted it. And the good news of the Christian gospel is that this new world, this new creation has already begun. It has begun when Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on Easter morning, having having faced and beaten the double enemy, sin and death that has corrupted and defeated God's lovely creation, defaced God's lovely creation. If there is one thing that all humans, since the beginning of time, since the start of humans, if there's one thing that we've known, it's that dead things stay dead, right? Ask any doctor, ask any soldier, right? Dead people tend to remain that way. But the central claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus did die, actually, but that he did not stay that way. And that is, and that in the resurrection of Jesus, something new, something new, some new possibility entered our world. Something so revolutionary happened in that day that it opened up all kinds of new possibilities. And God's great plan of redemption and renewal in, in Jesus' resurrection has kind of shifted into overdrive, if you will. That the love and grace of God are now available to every person. That relationship to the creator of the universe is now open to every individual. And to step in under the lordship of Jesus means that you get swept up into God's great plan of redemption and renewal. This is what the resurrection means, if it means anything at all. And on Easter morning, I just must say, there is no better time to step in under this reality, to step into God's great plan of redemption and renewal, to take part in this cosmic plan that God has been weaving from the very beginning of time that is summed up in the person of Jesus and is really brought to bear on all of our lives in the resurrection. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. To identify with the resurrection of Jesus, to understand what it means, means to know that God is about his plan of redemption and renewal. That God is reconciling human hearts back into his own life. That he is in the process of renewing and restoring the world in which we live. That we get the honor and the privilege of participating in this process with the creator of our very souls. This is what the resurrection means. And this is the opportunity available to all of us on Easter and every day, really. And so as we close this morning, I just want to circle around to this idea one last time. What is your vision for your life? Is it this vision of cosmic renewal? Is it this vision that death no longer holds sway over your life? It is, a, is it a vision that, uh, that of, of, servant, of servanthood under King Jesus, where you, you serve a leader who loves you and who wants the best for your life, 
and knows how best to direct us. What is the vision for your life? And where has the current vision that you're living under got you? That's the other question, right? Just in a utilitarian sense, like where has it led you to? Because if this Jesus, if this Galilean rabbi was really resurrected from the dead, if this event really happened, if he was who he said he was, then it is wise to get our philosophy of life from him and to step in under his leadership, his authority, and to turn away from all other philosophies, ideologies, ideas that seek to lead our lives in other directions and to hand our lives over to the one who conquered death. This is a wise thing. And so this morning as we close, I just want uh, us to just briefly take a moment, an oppor- just, a, just a brief moment to reflect together, just to reflect together on the significance of this person, Jesus. And if you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. If you just reflect on this issue, like who, who leads my life? Who is my leader? Who is the person that I take orders from? What is the philosophy that guides my life? The truth of the matter is, is that all of our hearts are kind of partial, right? There are things, there are, we are tied into things, ideas, philosophies that lead our lives in a myriad of different directions. But the reality is that Jesus this morning wants us to come in under his leadership. Not because he is overbearing, not because he is a control freak, but rather because he was resurrected from the dead and is the resurrected Lord of the universe. And if that is true, it means that he is the only one in this world who can and should direct our lives. And so this morning, as we sit here, what we can say, what we can say, regardless of where we are, is that Jesus is a force to be reckoned with. He's a force to be reckoned with. And just in an attitude of prayer this morning, if you're in this room and you're saying to yourself, like, I don't know if I've ever dealt with this man, Jesus. I, I, there are, there are areas of my life where I have not come in under the Lordship of Christ. I have not maybe even ever in my life identified with this resurrected Lord, have stated that I believe him and that I want to follow him and be a part of his mission and his plan in the world. This morning, right where you sit, you can do that. You can do that. You can simply pray in your heart right where you are, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. I believe in your resurrection. And God will do the work in your heart of renewing and restoring you and enfolding you into this big plan of renewal and redemption. And if in this place this morning you're like me, and when you look at the resurrection and you see its significance, you see all manner of ways in which your heart and your mind are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, and you see the wreckage in your life that is a byproduct of that, if you're like me, This is just a moment for you to say, Lord, Jesus, I give that part of myself over to you. I submit again that area of my life under your lordship. Because you are a a resurrected Lord, I acknowledge your goodness, your grace, and that what you say about life is correct. Let's pray. Father,
We love you. And we thank you for bringing us all here together this Easter morning. We ask, God, that right now, by your Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict some of us of ways in which we have not stepped in under the Lordship of Jesus, that we have looked to other things, other philosophies, other beliefs for, the leader, for leadership in our lives, God. And I pray specifically for those who have not given their lives over to this person, to this Jesus, who have not wrestled with the reality of this resurrection. Right now, in the quiet of their heart, would you reach out to them? Would they give their life over to you? And would they find in you a leader who is worthy to follow? We pray it all now in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you for being at church today. One thing, I, I always say this, but if, if you're in the room today and you said, oh man, I, I want to follow Jesus with my life, and that pr you prayed that prayer with us just a moment ago. Please come talk to me after church. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like in your life moving forward. And if you're in this room and you're going to go have asparagus, I say Godspeed. <laughs> I don't know. That was a horrible joke. Um, what? Oh, we're showing pictures. Uh, uh, Jesus is risen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus.